Welcome to the Teacher As Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Milner, a teacher who is painfully curious and very easily inspired. This podcast is ever-changing, and I hope with each season, you find episodes that speak to you in your work as an educator. This is the fourth season of the Teacher As, and it's exciting to see the growth in how many educators are listening. Episodes are released every other week. If you enjoy the Teacher As, please rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It helps the podcast reach more educators. Thanks for listening. My name is Miriam Plotinsky. By day, I am an instructional specialist for secondary English language arts and literacy in a very large school district in Maryland. And then what I call my side hustle or the night shift, I do a few different things. I teach teachers in graduate courses about the art and the craft of teaching. And then I also write books and articles. So I have one book that's out already called Teach More, Have or Less, one coming out in March about school leadership, and then another one in the pipeline that's in production. That's amazing. So cool. Do you want to talk about your genesis from teaching to going into the leadership, teaching teachers slash writing, um, that whole process for you? It was definitely a process and it was one that was strongly steeped in instruction which has always been a happy place for me. I don't know if it was intentional initially, but I stayed in the classroom for longer than a lot of people do who wind up being in the position that I'm in. So typically people um, might have more of an eye toward leadership from their early education years um, or their years as educators, and then they have sort of this vision. I did not mean to necessarily stay in the classroom initially. I was interested in education policy. I got my graduate degree in that in Washington, D.C., where education policy is a thing. And then I realized that people who are in the classroom don't usually go into ed policy. And this was a very disillusioning moment for me. They didn't have classroom experience, what was going on. My perspective wasn't as valued as I was hoping it would be from that on-the-ground place. So I inadvertently decided to stay in the classroom longer. And in so doing, I got hooked on teaching, started to love it so much. This was about three to five years in. And I stayed in the classroom for almost 20 years. Oh, yeah. Toward the, yeah. And then toward toward the end of that time, I became a school leader. I was doing in-house professional development for the school that I worked at. I was doing, uh, I was a department head and I got my certification in administration and supervision thinking I might want to do that. But then this this job opened up in my county for something called an instructional specialist with someone who is sort of an in-house consultant of sorts. And it was to work with pre-K to 12 schools in a specific part of the county because we divided it up. It's a huge county. And I thought it sounded like a great adventure. So started doing that. And I learned so much about instruction that I had not seen before because I had been in only ninth to 12th grade. Yeah. <laughs> and you learn an awful lot from all the, all the different ages and stages. And so that was really enlightening. And around the same time, I started writing articles about an experience I'd had as a creative writing teacher with a a method that I had not yet coined, but it was a way to step back and let students do more. And these articles started to take, and this was in the first, this was in 2020 that all this kind of started to. Oh, wow. Snowball. So (laughs) here I am, here I am, you know, learning how to do a new gig. And I get an email from a publisher saying, have you ever considered writing a book? And this was about two months into the pandemic. And I thought, mm, timing's good. And yeah. who, who doesn't want to write a book? Well, maybe some people don't, but I really did. So 
I started to take methods that had worked for me, but that I had never been able to explain verbally to people. And I created what are now exemplified in my book as the four stages of hover free instruction. Yes. Yes. So that it would make sense outside my own brain. Hands off instruction, I noticed, is another way of saying Yeah, that too. I I couldn't decide. So, right. (laughs) So the book, which I really, honestly, I enjoyed so much. I was sharing with you before we started recording. The book is called Teach More, Comma, Hover Less, How to Stop Micromanaging Your Secondary Classroom. And as I'm going through the book, I'm going... Yep, we do that in fourth grade. We do that in elementary. Yep, we do that. We do that. We do that. And I'm like, oh, okay. They don't naturally normally do this maybe in high school. And, you know, the menu idea or uh, I I have so much to say. So before we jump into the book, because I have like, I'm like, turn to page, you know, because I want to talk about certain things. Like there are certain (laughs) things I'm like, I'm taking this and using it tomorrow in my fourth grade classroom. So even if you're an elementary, you're going to get a lot out of this book. But can you tell us your version, synopsis summary of the book? Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. I always get really excited when people tell me that anything I do is useful or helpful because that's the goal. Um, and you're, you're right. I was very inspired when I was in that job by watching elementary classrooms. And very often in secondary spaces, we might assume that kids don't necessarily need that kind of classroom. They'll, they'll do what we want them to do without all the bells and whistles. But it's not really bells and whistles. It's a way of learning. And so it's, it can be deceptive. And just because a child is compliant doesn't mean the child is yeah. learning. So that's the approach that I took. And I remember the most influential teacher in my life was uh, when I was student teaching. I had a cooperating teacher in seventh grade and she, the station rotation, I've never seen it work so, so seamlessly. And so I'd seen it done in a secondary space and knew that it could be incredible. And I saw her be successful yeah. in ways that her colleagues were not. So that was a really great early experience. What did that success look like, sound like, engaged students? Like what could you define that? The students in her class, first of all, were excited to be there. They came in, they knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly where to go. There wasn't the usual cajoling or let's get focused. And there were, and this was a very challenging group of kids. It wasn't as though they didn't have a lot to distract them outside of the school day to make life more difficult because we have students who have, they're carrying so much. But the way that she designed her classroom they were able to move into spaces depending, and this was not every day, we didn't do stations all the time, but there were choice-driven days where they could go where they were inclined to go. And that was so important because there are a lot of kids who walk into our classrooms and they don't want to talk that day, or they might want to talk a lot, or perhaps they have something specific they want to do first because that's what they feel comfortable doing at that point in time. And we can't always accommodate how students feel, but I don't think that we do it enough. So if there's just a day or two each week where we're allowing for that, it's it's building trust in a way that's much more through action than through words. You know, we're not saying I'm here for you or I have your back. We're not, we're not all talk and no action. They know that we're there for them because we've created a space for them. Right. And when you say a day, that's obviously secondary when you might have them for one period. Right. right. Like elementary, it might be fine 30 to 40 minutes where, you know, there can be this choice time or it could even be within the class structure. You know, the math, we have math centers 
and they have the choice. They're, they and their partner choose which center they want to do. You know, they grab those different centers and they choose one. Yeah. And the term centers is not always familiar to people who teach older grades. So, you know, just as you're saying, and, and this is important to know in secondary spaces, we don't necessarily see kids every day. We might see them for, you know, 70 to 90 minutes every other day or two to three days a week. Uh, might have them for 45 minutes, four days a week. And I know that during the height of the pandemic, it was more like 45 minutes twice a week. So that really, you know, it's, it's not as much time as we ever want. And so that too works against us with student-centered learning because it's it's the whole, I have to get through. I have to get through my content. I have to teach this. I have to paste it. And so one thing that I try to emphasize is it's not how much content you're getting through that's being affected here. It's how you approach it. The content shouldn't change. The curriculum doesn't change. That's your expertise as a teacher. Right, right. And that's that's your job to to make those decisions. It's just how kids are accessing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even just, I mean, just adding more choice makes a huge difference. Yeah, I was doing a I was doing a professional development in a school yesterday or the day before, and we were talking about differentiation. And there's this great I'm trying to remember who who invented this because it would be great to credit them, but it's something called the plus one framework, where you take whatever you're doing that day, and he just recommends you add one more choice. It's not even this huge thing; it's just one more thing. That you're That's doing. a great, great tip for any grade. So mindset shifts, reframing relationships from engagement to investment, and then the choice based instruction. Yes, those are the four stages. And then you put it all together. I do. And I put it all together at the end. I'm going to work backward a little bit. Well, because teachers don't have a lot of time to read professional development books right now. And I I felt this as a teacher sometimes too, the frustration of reading something, but not necessarily finding practice from the theory right away. So while I recommend to anybody who reads this book that they go in order of, of the chapters just to see the stages... They don't have to. I am seriously just as happy if you flip around, find a figure or a chart that looks like you could yeah. do it and do that. Yeah. And I'll speak to a couple that I would recommend because I was like, ooh, I'm going to use this. And ooh, I like this. <laughs> that's good. And they've been tested on real oh, children. Cool. So that's, that's important to know. Um, but in terms of the actual stages, so I start with mindset because when it comes to student-centered learning, anything around philosophies, and approaches, it has to do with what we believe. What do we believe that students can do versus what they can't do? So if I'm in a very teacher-directed space, I was in one a few weeks ago, and the teacher is asking students to define terms and showing them videos, and is very in charge of, of, of the space, and there really wasn't any, any student talk. So that tells me that probably not explicitly, but implicitly, the teacher doesn't think that the learning is going to happen without that high level of direction. So that first section of the book, there are all these little tools like take a mindset quiz, like the magazines, how, you know, how, how much do I micromanage? Or I might be a micromanager if. And a lot of these little characteristics seem pretty innocuous by themselves, but when you put them together, they start translating to something. So for example, I used to be taught that it was advisable to teach bell to bell. You start when the bell rings, you end when the bell rings. That's what you do. You fill that time. And it was only later on that I started to question that because that allows for no flexibility at all. That means that I'm driving everything. And so if a student shares a tangential idea, as long as it's not, let's distract the teacher forever, which they do. Um, why not? Why can't I have that kind of agility? So that, that's the mindset shift piece of that first section. And then I move into 
relationships on a different level. And this is actually what I'm writing my third book about right now, which is that when we are in classrooms, it's important to have rapport. Yes, rapport matters. Kids liking us, completely important. But that's not the only thing. They have to trust that we respect them as learners. And if we don't show that, that we have that faith and that value in their ideas, we're not going to have completed the loop and they might not be comfortable sharing things with us on a deeper level, which leads into the third stage when we're planning for instruction, how do we pull kids into the process? When we ask for the, first of all, do we ask for their feedback? And when we do, do we make changes? I'm teaching my class tomorrow night of adult learners, and I'm going to start the class by sharing their feedback from our last class and say, here's what we, here's what we're doing as a result. Here's what I can't do. And here's why. Yeah. These are the changes that we're making and here are your lingering questions that we're going to address. So that way they know that before finishing my lesson plans, I took their thoughts into consideration. So just that kind of approach. Again, they're not teaching the class, but I'm listening and I'm, and I'm, they have, they have a say. So there are tools for that in that section. And then finally, what we were just discussing is the choice based. Um, How do you create opportunities for choice where maybe you haven't before? How do you start thinking, what, what do I have to do? What can they do? And what can we do? Yeah, that's one of the charts. That's one of the charts. <laughs> that is one um, of the charts. I like that chart. The, from engagement to investment, is that is the reframing the relationships allowing for the, from the engagement to investment? Yes, so that when you ask students what they think, they'll tell you the truth. Yep. Otherwise, you're not going to hear much yeah. of anything. Or, you know, you won't, most often, and I think we feel this um, from the teaching perspective, we might get a survey from our leaders saying, hey, and I talk about this in my second book, you know, what do you think about? And you feel as though some, they're just checking boxes. It might not even feel like a safe thing to do to say what you think. So we're trying to create a situation where that's not the case at all. When you're saying you have the second book and the third book, (laughs) I just need to get my head around this. The second book is what? What's the title? It's called Lead Lead Like a Teacher, and it's coming out in March. Okay. And it's all about how uh, school leaders can really incorporate the teacher perspective into the work they do. Ah, okay. Because, so you yes. took, you took yes. elementary ideas, brought them to high school level. Now you're bringing teaching ideas to leadership. Yes. Gotcha. With enormous disclaimers. Ah, and by the way... <laughs> Yeah. By the way, you know, we, we all we all feel disclaimers when we write. It's yeah. like just in case, don't you know, don't hurt my feelings. <laughs> and then you said your third title was. So I don't have a title. You're working on it. It's it's, it's germinating. Yeah. So um, I signed the contract for it just about a month ago. So it's it's in the process. But essentially, the idea behind it is is to build student identity with writing instruction, actually, so that they can create a positive a positive academic sense of self that follows them beyond Ooh. school. And I'm presenting on that topic um, in a couple of weeks at the National Council for Teachers of English. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so I'm going to share. And then I want I want you to give, you know, what you were thinking behind it. Was that your intent when you wrote it or created it? So page 47, for those of you who have the book. <laughs> Ooh, I'll pull out my copy too so I can cross-reference. This is the Dynamic Planning Guide. And I thought this was really cool because, you know, first you have the the usual stuff, you know, what is the desired learning outcome and the main expectations of the assignment? Um, what are the teacher directed elements? 
And then the next three are like, oh, purposely planning for these things makes sense. So the first one is what can students accomplish without help? And then the next one, how can students exercise choice throughout this process, both with the work itself and with deadlines? And then the third one, what materials are needed for students to be both autonomous and successful? So you're planning for that hands-off instruction right at the beginning. Yes. Yes, you are. It's literally part of your of your thought process. Yeah. And, and you know, for, for naysayers who they say, oh, it's so much extra work. This is something you're going to do anyway. The question is, when are you yeah. going to do it? Are you going to figure it out while they're in front of you and be taken unawares? Or are you going to think, and, and you know, we do all, we think about our instructions in our head a lot. I just encourage writing, writing it down or typing it, you know, just say, what, what can they do and what do I need yeah. to do? And it's just quick, quick notes. It's not yeah. like it's a right. dissertation. Yeah. yeah. So that I was like, okay, yeah. Like have this in my mind as I'm doing my planning. And then the other one was paid, well, other few. So page 86. Dee, dee, dee. And that was the completed self-reflection mindset. Mm-hmm. So this, I just like that whole piece of non-negotiables, student-centered elements, those two pieces. Again, not always something that you see in these planner, you know, teacher planner things. So in non-negotiables, you know, student contributions, uh, collaborative work, less teacher talk. I don't want to lecture. So there's little boxes. So you might say, you know what? My non-negotiable is less teacher talk, which I have been working on for years. I'm getting better at it, get better at it. <laughs> but it's hard. Yeah. We, we, we all work yeah. on it constantly. It's hard. We, we, we enjoy talking about what I we love do. this transparency. They know what success looks like and how to get there. I love that one. Opportunity for reassessment wherever possible. Flexibility with how assignments are presented as long as they are completed and consistent feedback. So you as a teacher say, okay, for this course, are all of these my non-negotiables or I'm going to pick? I mean, what was your thought with that? My thought is you pick what makes sense to you. And it's not even necessarily for the course. It might be, we're in the first month. What, am I, what do I want right. to do first? So what culture am I building and how am I going to use these non-negotiables to get there? So I might start with just less teacher talk. I'm going to get students accustomed to a teacher who doesn't say as much. And here's how I'm going to do it. And so, again, it's really the know thyself sort of situation here, but not just know, know who you are, but then start to think about what it looks like tangibly. Because we tend to plan and to instruct a lot with intuition or with gut feelings. And a plan like this takes a little bit of that out of the equation and makes us hold ourselves a little more accountable. And I mean accountable in a very positive way. People think accountability, they think punitive. Accountability just means I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I know what they're supposed to be doing. So that's that's helpful for everybody. Yeah, And I think students can tell when a teacher is on track and knows what they're doing compared to a teacher that's kind of... They do. And then and then the student-centered elements, again, with the boxes, varied seating arrangements, student-led activators, materials selected, not just by me. I want kids to bring in anything relevant. Emphasis on projects, learning by doing, and taking suggestions for ways to enjoy the process, fun Friday, and so forth. Giving them a voice is big. 
Exactly. And it's also, it can also be a time thing. We might want to start with varied seating arrangements. I'm going to teach you these three to four different arrangements, depending on what our class is structured like. We're going to practice getting into and out of them. So that when I say, you know, formation one or whatever you want to say, there we go. And that's a very, it, it seems like a logistical detail or an operational one, a but it, yeah. exactly, but it leads to instructional outcomes. And then, you know, later on in the month or unit or year when they're more trusting, they might feel comfortable leading an activator. They might feel comfortable giving you a resource and saying, hey, can we use this? This is great. I mean, when I used to teach poetry, which is typically an area of huge resistance for older students. Yeah. By the time they get to high school, they're not as excited about poetry a lot of the time. That's sad. <laughs> I know. Well, it's it's whole other avenue there, but bring in a poem that you like, and the poem can be a song lyric. So you make this very accessible entry point, and then it becomes a different conversation. Yeah, as long when you can say song, because uh, I whenever I do poetry, or even when I'm doing just like figurative language. I pull out and I don't think it's great music, but I pull out the Katy Perry because it's, I mean, come on. I've got the eye of yeah. the tiger. A lot of metaphors. Firework, roar. She's all about the metaphor or simile <laughs> or, yeah. So, yeah, just making it just yeah. something that they're going to be interested Excited in. Excited about. Yeah. Because if you don't, you know, to learn the people, you have to understand the people and you also have to, to realize that you're not, they're going to find things that you've never seen before and you're going to want to keep and hold on to for future groups of students. So that's the other thing is, is it mutually beneficial practice? Yeah, that's awesome. And the last thing that I was like, Oh my God, was page 9495. Yeah. And you already mentioned it. It's the, your job, my job and our job. Now I've seen this before again in elementary, but on page 95, you give this great little like example. So your job, have a journal at the ready every class period. My job, the teacher's job, create a list of simple statements to use as an ongoing activator. And then our job, participate actively, not passively, listen to one another. And So I've seen this structure when a kid is having behavior issues and it's really behavior centered. So your job is to, you know, sit in your seat, listen attentively, whatever. My job is to work hard to make my lessons interesting. And uh, my job is to remind you when blah, blah, blah. And then our job is to make sure everybody's able to learn and that we're not stopping others from learning, however you would do it. I've all, I think I've only seen it as a behavior thing. Well, and it's interesting because in the example that you just gave, the instructional component, so the learning, is in the responsibility and realm of the teacher. And it's the, it's the student's job simply to comply yeah. and to not interfere. Yeah. And so it's a very different kind of thing to say, no, you have a job when you're learning. You ha- we have a shared responsibility in this room, and here's how it's mapped out. Exactly. And that's it. Your job, my job, our job. Mm-hmm. It's very it, – that our job really brings it into – community, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, you know, for teachers who are saying, well, but our students just going to teach the class. No, that's your job. <laughs> but we are going to find ways to learn from one another and to empower one another. Absolutely. Amazing. So those are the things that really like, oh my gosh, for me, were there parts of your book that you wanted 
to particularly talk about that you haven't talked about yet? I mean, it, there, there are certain parts of my book that I really like. My, I think, and, and, and this is a personal reason, but you know, I have, I have three children of my own who are in elementary, middle and high school. So I've got one of each. And um, the chapter two, the beginning reframing relationships, the story about Jennifer. Yes. That's probably my own personal favorite part of the book. It's, it's about a girl who's in science class and she's trying to raise her hand. She's very shy or she's perceived as shy. And she's trying to answer a question about symbiosis. And it's sort of presented two different ways. The first way where a teacher gives a more classic, she, she's wrong. Her first answer is wrong. And the first part, the teacher says, oh, you know, not, not exactly. And they move on. And she's like, I'm never going to talk again. <laughs> Because that's how some kids take that. And in the second situation, the teacher sticks with her and manages to, to decompress the situation and also to turn it so that mistakes are celebrated and so that we feel safe as learners, no matter what we say, no matter what a kid says, we're going to find a way to validate it. Yes. As long as it's so for me, I think I connect to this part because as a teacher for so many years, you know, we see kids who are invisible. And sometimes we make the assumption they're trying to be invisible or sometimes we think, oh, it's just a quiet kid or it's just a shy kid. And then I think, what are they like at home? Well, they're probably not quiet at home. We probably just have missed something. You know, they're not comfortable with the kids around them. They're not comfortable with us. So it's become this area of passion for me. And that's what this part of the book represents is trying to figure out how we can really tap into kids to figure out who they really are. Yeah, I I'm going to read, there's three bullet points on page 25 that I was like, oh, yeah. So it says the specific takeaways to remember when calling on students or singling them out in any way are. So the first one, validate all answers, correct or otherwise, by using them to move the entire class understanding of a concept forward. Do not call on other students to provide the right or desired it. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Well, because we have the answer in our heads and we're waiting for someone yeah. else to tell yeah. us what we think. Yeah. So do not call on other students to provide the, quote, right answer or desired answer, as this practice is an unspoken way of removing confidence from the student who responded first. Stop and make instruction clear if a student shows confusion. If one student is confused, and I say this all the time, it is likely that other students are in the same boat. I'm always like, raise your hand and ask the question. Because you are probably not the only one who has this question. Yeah. yeah. And we say any so, questions, but then. Right. So the kid gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, my gosh, they're way off. What is it? What does the teacher say? You have some options. You could say, tell me more about that. That's one of my favorite ones. Tell me yeah. more about about what you're thinking. Because it, it really does help uncover what their brain is doing. And then you can say, oh, I, I get it. I yeah. see why you said that. Um, you can, if it's way, way off base and you don't think you can get there, just by a tell me about it. Because that happens sometimes. Like you're over here and there's a child way over there. And maybe they weren't listening carefully or maybe they're just. Right. Just say, I love that idea because, and you find a reason why. And then you say, let's pause for a second. Turn to someone next to you and talk about this question a little bit more. What are some other ideas? And so you everybody, said, everybody, turns everybody, talks. everybody turns and talks. And so, you know, building off of this idea that we had, where else can we go? And then it's, it's, they haven't done anything wrong. You're like, that, you've said what specifically is great about that idea. 
you know, if even even if I'm trying to think of a of an example off the top of my head, if you've written um, you know a paper about um, a, a copyright dispute over a famous soft drink brand, and then you and then the kids like I love I love Coke it's the best thing ever. Well, and that. I like what you're saying because the reason that soft drink brands are so intent on keeping their branding is because you're obviously a customer. You're obviously someone who cares. That's fantastic. Okay. So let's go with that. Let's think about that. Everyone take a moment. Right. Let's consider this question further. Once you do that, a kid isn't going to step back and go, I'm never talking again. Right. Well, and also we as teachers, and I'm just going to put this out there. Our job is not to fill kids with our knowledge. That's that's not really why we're there. So if we have one answer in mind, we might want to challenge that. Unless it's some of their fact-based answers. But then even in that situation, I think my favorite mistake, a strategy in this book, great for math class, we have a problem that has one answer. Tell a bunch of kids in the class, put them on a piece of paper, let's put them in a hat, let's pull it out. This one right or wrong? Right? Okay. Wrong. How did someone get to this answer? Let's think about it. Let's uncover the thinking because that's that's more important in some ways to think about how we can yeah. misconceptualize but still be very active in our thinking. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> it's a little different, but I do. Um, favorite mistake. Yeah. Have you done favorite mistake? Mm-hmm. The kids love it. The kids love it. They love it. And it really focuses on the fact that even if you get something wrong, look at how much you did right. Exactly. You did this one little thing. This one little wrong, thing. You know? And yeah. And, well, and also I like to distinguish between mistake and error. Mistake is like a little blip. You know, we, we didn't mean to, we know, we know what to do. When we make a mistake, we knew, we know how to fix it. An error is different. An error, we need to do some teaching. So I definitely want to know how can people reach you before I ask the last question and how can they get your book and books? You have two books that are published, right? Well, one, one is it's available for pre-order. So first of all, my books are on anywhere books are sold. So if you go on Amazon, you'll see Teach More, Hover Less. You can buy it and have it in two days if you have Prime. And then uh, also pretty much everywhere books are sold. And then Lead Like a Teacher is up for pre-order. Uh, both, you know, it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to get your books, it's there. Um, in terms of finding me, my website is my first and last name together. So miriamplotinsky.com. And there's a contact form on there. And I respond to anybody who writes there who wants to engage in awesome conversations about teaching. So I am very, very accessible in that way. And then the social media that I engage in is at Mirplo MCPS. So that's M-I-R-P-L-O-M-C-P-S. So that's that's Twitter. And again, I'm very friendly. I do have a Facebook page as well. So I, I have a page on Facebook with my first and last name. So if you search for me, like there's a, there's a page, you know, that's where I post my articles and, my podcasts, like, for example, our delightful conversation will be posted there. I'll tag you if I can find you. I'm there. This has been really, really cool. So my last question is, what are you zooming in on right now in your work, either the writing that you're doing or at school? What are you zooming in on? Zooming in. I have heard a lot from teachers about how they can continue to serve a variety of students in their classrooms with, you know, you have the differentiated needs, but you also have differentiated backgrounds and perspectives. And, and it's, it's a very challenging thing to just give people some online tools and say, go, oh, you can do this now. Cause that's not the reality. So I've been putting a lot of thinking behind 
where do we create accessible entry for everybody? But and so the standard is the same, no matter who the student is or, or how we perceive them. And how do we give them those options for elevating? And how do we show them that they can do it? How do we communicate that very explicitly? So that's what I've been working on a lot. Um, and then, of course, I'm very steeped in my book right now. So I have been creating so many fun, awesome, or just reinventing ones that I've done, which is also great. Like I have some favorite activities that I like to do. So I've been putting them into the book for this is how we really connect to who kids are. It looks like it's fun, but we're learning things about them. That sounds good. I'm, I'm very excited about this, this one that I'm writing now. I'm, I'm in that, that writing space where it just, it's flowing, which doesn't always flow. So I like it when that happens. Yeah. Uh, who's the publisher? Uh, Norton Books and Education. They are an imprint of W.W. Norton. Okay. So yeah. they just saw your articles and approached you? So it's funny. There's different publishers on my articles, but it started that journey. And then it was really funny because th- that other publisher and it, it sort of, I, I started blogging for Norton around the same time and I saw the work they were doing. And I was like, oh, I like, I like, so I, I wrote, so I was like, hey, I've got this whole book in the works. Might you be interested? And they were like, yes. That's awesome. So it was kind of funny. It's like that song about Northern stars. Like they lead you toward other things. Yes. The Northern star isn't where you wind up. I love that though. That is great. That's fantastic. And your ideas are, you know, you, they go kind of across. I know this is really for secondary teachers, but the, I, the, the, the philosophies and the ideas go across all grades. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that because you have that elementary expertise. And so, and also I should say that one of my teammates in my previous position was such a, such a luminary of elementary curriculum. Like he knew everything. And so he really influenced my thinking too, because, you know, I just, I needed that perspective. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope everybody checks out uh, Miriam's books. And I honestly think you should do a podcast, but that's just me. I would love to. I just don't know where I would find the time. I think my, my children, my children, they would stop having me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the writing the books and the, you know, working in schools and teaching teachers, it is a lot. But someday maybe You're, it's very inspiring to listen to you. So. Well, thank you again. Thank you. This was fun. It was great talking with you. For my blog, transcripts of this episode, and links to any resources mentioned, visit my website at www.theteacheras.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa B. Milner. And I hope you check out the Teacher As Facebook page for episode updates. Thanks for listening. And that's a wrap.